Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome to the Got A Minute podcast. This is uh, Larson Hicks, one of your two hosts, and I'm joined by the second uh, host here, Rich Lusk, Pastor Rich Lusk. Good afternoon. Good morning. What it's we're we're almost we're like nine minutes from afternoon. So what's up, man? Great, great to be with you, Larson. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. Uh, excited to be recording with you this week. I feel like there's all kinds of interesting things going on out in the out in the the world in our church and our in our uh, circles. Um, and uh, well, you know, it's it's uh, one of the things that that people are thinking a lot about, talking a lot about right now is. Lent and uh, and Ash Wednesday just just came and went and uh, how do you how do you guys look at you know church calendar and the season of Lent in particular what what's been your your approach on those things at your church Yeah, that's great. Obviously, the church calendar is adiaphora, which is to say it's not a matter of divine obligation. You're mm-hmm. not obligated to keep days and seasons and whatnot. Uh, it's it can be helpful to do so. Yeah, uh, I think the the calendar has, if it's done rightly. Obviously, if it's done wrongly, it can be a disaster, pastorally yeah. and otherwise. But done rightly and done in wisdom, uh, I think it can be a really helpful teaching tool for mm-hmm. churches, for families. You know, as a head of household, I tried to yeah. uh, use the church calendar as a way of getting my kids into the themes and the major events of, of Scripture, major events in the life of Jesus, because that's really what the Good. church attracts with is the life of Jesus. So mm-hmm. real briefly, Larson, here's kind of an overview, and then I'll yeah. dial in on Lent for just a minute, because um, every, every year there's a lot of controversy at this time of year over yeah. uh, Lent and what it means. I think a lot of misunderstanding and, and maybe some people not really understanding the options that are available to us when it comes to something like Lent. You know, you don't have to do it in a Roman Catholic yeah. way. You don't have to do it in a in a way that would have been contrary to the spirit of the Reformation. There are actually some options there that are, that are helpful. But th- think of the church calendar as telling a story. Mm. The calendar tells a story, and it basically tells the story of the life of Jesus and his church. So it's really all about uh, the major events in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, well, then right. continuing into his heavenly ministry, you could say, into the present. But uh, you know, it starts with Advent. The, the church year begins with Advent, which is all about the promise of Jesus coming. And of course, that bleeds into Christmas, uh, which is a 12-day season. So Advent is four weeks before Christmas, leading up right. to really preparation for, then you have Christmas, which is a 12-day season, celebrating the birth of the Son of God into the world, the incarnation. And I love right. the fact that Christmas is a 12-day season starting December 25th. It means you don't have to try to cram all the Christmas hymns into you know one service or something like that, right? Because uh, right. Christmas hymns are distinct from Advent hymns. I mean that that's one thing that's interesting to think about. Uh, but you have the Christmas season celebrating his, his birth, then that that carries over into Epiphany, which really continues as a season of celebration, uh, starting mm-hmm. January sixth. And uh, Epiphany really, it's all about the Epiphany or the manifestation or the revelation of who Jesus is, that Jesus came not just to be uh, the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the nations. And so Epiphany really focuses on those events that have to do with revealing his his identity early in his life and early in his ministry. So the star and the magi visiting 
that's part of Epiphany. That's kind of part of Christmas, too. I actually think mm-hmm. the Magi showed up the night he was born along with the shepherds. Mm. Uh, so the, the, there's, there's obviously, this is not strictly chronological. It's really more thematic in some ways. But the wise right. men coming to visit and bringing their gifts, uh, the first, the, the baptism of Jesus, the first miracle that he performed, those would be the big events that we remember during the season of Epiphany that have to do with this manifestation of who Jesus is, this revelation of who Jesus is. Uh, and then 40 days, not counting Sundays, 40 days before Easter, uh, we begin the season of Lent. Traditionally begins with Ash Wednesday, and uh, it would be a time of, of repentance and confession. But I point out that uh, it's really a mistake to make Lent about your own suffering or your mm. own fasting. You know, we, mm. we say during Christmas, Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, that's true of right. Lent, too. He's the reason yeah. for the Lenten season. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, Lent yeah. is not about yeah. your suffering. It's about Jesus' suffering. It's about Jesus dealing mm. with Satan in the wilderness. So you got the 40 days that line up with his 40 days of fasting and dealing with Satan's temptation in the wilderness. Right. Of course, it culminates with Monday Thursday in the upper room and then Good Friday when he's crucified and Holy Saturday when he's buried. Uh, so, you know, if you want to have, if you want to think about what is Lent really about, it's really about the suffering of Jesus. It's what Jesus yeah. came to do as the one who would, who would suffer and die and bear the curse and absorb the wrath of God for us. Now, the church traditionally has emphasized as a way of um, reminding ourselves of Jesus' suffering. Perhaps we do engage in fasting or something like that. But like at, yep. at my church, and I would say this this is the way to keep a Protestant Reformational Lent. Uh, we would not tell anybody to fast for Lent any more than we would tell them that they have to get Christmas presents for their kids. Okay. Right. Uh, I'm not going to tell you you have to feast and 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 get you know an Xbox for your kid at Christmas, and I'm not going to tell you that you have to give up Xbox during Lent and give up right. feasting during Lent. Th- those are decisions to be made on your own if you want. Uh, sure. Some people think there's great value in fasting during the Lenten season, and of course, even if you do, Sundays are a feast day. Um, to be quite honest. I've never fasted for Lent. I, I don't, yeah. you know, that's not that's not something that I'm particularly interested in. But I've had family members and church members who have, and that's just fine. Uh, again, it's not the kind of thing to go on social media and brag about. Again, that would miss the point. Uh, but it's really about the suffering of Jesus. That becomes the the theme of the season. So just as during <clears throat> the Advent. <clears throat> excuse me, the Advent Christmas season, we're singing about the promise of Christ coming and then his birth. During the season of Lent, we'll have a lot of hymns, for example, in our Sunday morning liturgy that focus on his suffering and death. Right. Or his, you know, his temptation, different aspects of, of, uh, of his suffering during his earthly ministry. And then, of course, that gives way to Easter, which is a 50-day celebration of his triumphant resurrection. And there you've got Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter. And then, of course, Pentecost comes on that 50th day, and that has to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's also a celebration, you know, a great festival. And so then, and then Pentecost, uh, turns into usually have uh, Trinity Sunday, uh, the, the week after Pentecost. And then it turns into what is called ordinary time, which sounds kind of anticlimactic, but really that's a time just to focus on the ongoing ministry of Jesus in right. his church and the growth of the church and all of that. And so again, I, I don't preach the lectionary. So sometimes my sermons are keyed mm. in to where we are in the church year. And some, sometimes they're not right. um, because what I really like to do is preach, preach through books of, of scripture. Right. Um, so the church calendar doesn't dominate things, but you know, we have a number of hymn slots, 
a mm-hmm. number of hymns we're going to sing on a Sunday morning, and we try to make sure that at least two or three of those hymns are going to be key to the church year every single Sunday, whatever season we happen to be in. So yeah, even good. though you don't count Sundays in Lent, they're not part of the 40 right. days, still, this is the part of the year, the part of the church year, where we're focused on uh, the, the the suffering of Jesus and that sure. he came to bear the curse for us. And so we'll have at least a few hymns that focus on that. I think the value of the church calendar, and I, I made this point in our Ash Wednesday service this year, I, th- I think part of the value of it is that it kind of keeps us honest as Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you don't read through the Bible systematically, for example, you might tend to right. gravitate towards the yes. same two or three passages, you know, the yep. same handful of passages again and again and again. And so you end up yep. with this unbalanced view of, the Bible, what Absolutely. the Bible teaches, or an unbalanced view of God or Jesus or the Christian life, because you're fixated on certain passages maybe that bring you great comfort, and then you neglect yeah. other things. One thing yeah. that I like about Lent is that it does force us to reckon with some of those passages in Scripture and some of those themes in Scripture that are less comfortable, uh, yep. especially for, you know, American Christians who are so used to being comfortable, and, and you know, if we have an idol, you know, Francis Schaeffer totally. pointed out it's it's you know it's personal peace and affluence it's we live for our own comfort. Uh, Lent kind of jars us out of that and reminds us no actually the Christian you know Jesus suffered and and we're mm-hmm. called to suffer with him in various ways and so Lent sort of forces us to yeah. deal with those themes of the Scripture. If you only deal with kind of the 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 festive days in the church calendar. So we're going to celebrate mm-hmm. Christmas, and we're going to celebrate Easter, and we'll celebrate Pentecost. You hit those highlights, it's all festivity, and that's wonderful. Right. But you you actually end up there's this danger that you'll end up neglecting some of the more difficult or challenging uh, aspects of Scripture. Um, you know that that uh, that also need to be highlighted. So it's a way yeah. of I think keeping balance and keeping us in the whole story and not just the parts of it that are maybe easier to celebrate or enjoy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean I've I've um I've always been interested in the church. I mean I, I've been interested in the church calendar for a long time, <clears throat> and and you know I I think. I think, you know, the calendar is one of those things. I mean, you know, when you start looking at culture um, with a critical eye, you start to you start to notice that there are tons and tons of things all around us every day that have a, a religious or liturgical sort of um, impact on our life. I mean, things like football season, you know, and, and these different you know ways that we mark out time and space in the world around us. And, and it matters. It does, it does matter. It does shape the way we think and, and our mood and our focus, uh, during different times of year. And, and, and so I don't, I don't know when historically it was, you know, that Christians in America, I, uh, I would imagine, you know, after kind of, uh, the, the, maybe the second great awakening. I don't know though. I'm just, I'm just totally making that up. But at some point, you know, modern evangelical church just totally jettisoned all this stuff and, and all of it, you know, all of it feels Catholic and, um, it feel Roman Catholic, I should say. And, and, and it feels like pietism and, and kind of, you know, mysterious or, 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 uh, superstitious or something. And so I think people are just, you know, put off by it perhaps just at a glance. Um, but I think when you start to look at things, you know, I mean, it's like, I think I've heard Doug talk about how like every, every day of the week, like you're going to, you're going to mark time some way. Right. Um, so why wouldn't as Christians, why wouldn't we mark it 
um, in a way that that uh, that acknowledges that, that ties in with our faith and with our our yeah. um, with with our Savior. It's like Thursday yeah. is like Thor's day, and and right. you can go through all of the all of the days of the week are all named after pagan gods. All the months, uh, the just months about all the Caesars and whatnot. Right, right, and yeah. so it's like somebody's going to, we're going to name something after something. And, you know, the fact that like academia has tried to do away with AD and BC, you know, is a great example of that. It's like, they know that that's a big deal that that we mark time and we mark, you know, we, we put this division right at Jesus Christ uh, for all of history is divided into before and after Jesus Christ. That's a pretty huge statement, you know, and, and they, they recognize that. And so I think, I think for Christians to see that even just the impact of that, that culturally reclaiming the calendar, you know, and, and, and putting God's mark on it or, or putting God's mark back on it in, in our, in our time is probably a, probably a good thing. just another way to extend his kingdom. Yeah. A couple things there, and then we'll move into our topics of the day. Cause this is, yeah, really- yeah. We didn't even say we we're going to talk about this, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting. God gave to Israel in the Old Covenant a calendar, so there was a divinely mandated calendar before Jesus yeah, came, and so that's true. And, and that's one of the reasons why I say there's wisdom in it. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, as you were pointing out, Larson, if you don't follow the church calendar, you're still going to have a calendar. It's actually impossible yeah. to treat every day just the same. What that's I have right. found is that for American Christians, if you don't do anything with the church calendar, if you're not always self consciously in some season, uh, right. what's going to happen is is you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna observe Labor Day, Memorial Day, Fourth of July. So American civic holidays will take over. Oh, yeah. uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day, uh, things like that are gonna take over, and those will be the big even, birthdays. You know, in your family, those are the things that will get celebrated and that will really yeah. structure time for you. And I don't have any objection to uh, you know, let's say Christians in America celebrating Labor Day or Memorial Day. I mean, those those can right. be perfectly fine things. Again, rightly understood. Uh, there may be some problems. Yeah, with I meant Labor to. Day. I meant to open by wishing you a happy. I meant to. I meant to open by wishing you a happy Black History Month. Uh, uh, sorry about that. Oh yes. Okay. So or Pride Month. Okay. So the, so <laughs> what's going to happen is. The, the culture's way of structuring and celebrating time is going to take yeah. over if you don't do the church. So so I think the church calendar That's is right. actually a way of pushing back against that. It's a way of being yep. countercultural, and it's a way of giving, you know, let's say families in our churches and, and giving kids a way of celebrating things that should be celebrated, yep. uh, but that are, uh, you know— going to stand as our culture continues to slide into apostasy, there's going to be more and more yep. things in our culture that get celebrated on the calendar that we can't join in with because they're yep. so distorted. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think, so, you know, Pride I, Month is obviously example of that. that's right. Well, and, and I'm on, I'm on my Google calendar and every month, you know, Google, Google calendar reminds me what, what the important holidays are, you know, and, and, Thir- you know, March is Women's History Month, and according to to Google, uh, you've got a uh, uh, May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, apparently. Um, and then, yeah, of course, you've got yeah, the June whole calendar is, becomes basically about identity politics. That's right, and and, that, and they're that's, you and know, we need they're imposing that. They way. know they know how important it is, right? I mean, I, I think that's the. I think that's the the irony of of modern evangelicals as we go. Oh, it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters anymore. And it's like, well, your enemies, God's enemies, 
think otherwise. <laughs> That's why they are they are claiming all Larson, of this stuff. Um, what remind me again, <laughs> Larson? Remind me again. What month is uh, Straight White Male History Month? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's it. Uh, that's I'm sure there's a month for for straight for for straight white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there's dangers. Obviously, I, I'm I'm cognizant of the dangers. You know, pietism and virtue signaling, and and you know, some of this stuff can become rote. I think people are scared of things becoming rote and and losing kind of the heart and spirit of it. And I think I think that's just something we always have to be cognizant of with anything and everything in in our christian walk is is it can always that that's always a temptation and then you get things like mardi gras you know you get weird cultural you know perversions of of christian holidays right, right. Mardi gras, uh, really perversion of the church calendar yeah 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 so so yeah we've got to we've got to but you know it comes back to a conversation you and i were having last week about um you know, going back to a simpler time or, or embracing the time that God's put us in and, and the responsibilities that come with, you know, with the time and the age we live in. And, and this is what, you know, we're, we're stewards of, of these traditions that have been handed down to us by our fathers and, and mothers in the faith. And, and we should, uh, we should receive them with gratitude and carry them forward and, but also not be, um, not be weirdly, um, you know, um, uh, you know, idolatrous about them, you know? Yeah. Speaking again, of, I just reiterate the church calendar is, is, is not a matter of divine law. Yeah. And so, so you can receive the tradition that's been handed down, but it's very malleable. Uh, yeah. Man was not made for the calendar. The calendar right. was made for man. And so that's you right. are very free to adjust its traditions and whatnot, uh, at, you know, as, as you see fit to best, again, in a sanctified and prudent kind of way to, to, to serve your own, uh, needs and the spiritual needs yeah. of your congregation or your family. So don't That's think, good. oh, if if I talk about Lent, that means I'm buying into this whole program right. of you can't eat sausage and right. you know and and uh, and you have you have to uh, have these regular fasts and you have to sort of rake yourself over the coals and uh, you know for the for this right. forty day period. No, that that's. Not, not at all. I wouldn't, you know, there, there are other ways to, to do Lent, to, to, to keep yeah. Lent or observe the, the main theme and events that the season reminds us of that don't, uh, that don't require any of that. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, again, there's a, there's a great deal of freedom here. Yeah. And your, your point, I, I'll make this last point or just reiterate the point you made that I think is really important is, is one of the things I love about the lectionary uh, a lectionary is really just a Bible reading plan, you know, that the church uses throughout the year. You know, we our church uses a two-year lectionary, and so we're and we don't preach from it necessarily. It's it's more we have. I'm probably like your church. We probably have fifteen or twenty different scriptures that are read, whether it's before prayers or it's in the you know, or it's when the call to worship or it's you know, uh, the the benediction. There's 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 uh, all of the, all of the, anyway, there's, there's scripture all over our, uh, our worship service. And we draw from the lectionary for that week. And, and, and what the point you made, I think is so important that, that I, if you ask me, well, what does scripture say about confession of sin? You know, I'm going to go to my favorite verse about that. Right. Um, but, but if you, if you are to faithfully work your way through the Bible, the scriptures are chocked full of teaching about sin and repentance and forgiveness. 
you know, the whole, the whole thing, you know, all throughout all 66 books talk about this stuff. And, and I think the lectionary is a, is a discipline. It sort of forces us to break out of our, our own, uh, patterns and, and, and consider all of scripture, you know, um, and, and not just jump up and down on our favorite passages and favorite verses. So I, I love that about, the church calendar about the lectionary. I think it's really important, and 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 you see it in churches. You see you see churches just getting a total rut. It's like the or pastors getting a rut where it's like I'm I'm just teaching about this one thing all the time, and eventually people just get burned out, you know, and and go. There's got to be more than this one thing. So, well, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about head coverings, Rich, just to change topics. Um, there, there was a podcast uh, that Brian Sove and his wife uh, recorded a couple weeks ago on the topic of head coverings. I listened to it. I listened to it actually because a bunch of people that I know uh, follow that podcast and listen to it and were asking me what I thought about head coverings. And I've read uh, your writings on this topic, and I know you've talked a ton about this, written a ton about it, done a ton of research. So this is like old news kind of like you feel like you've beat this to death probably, but, but, uh, in our church community, I can tell you it's, you know, people are, are coming to this question for the first time and our, and, and Sove has got a big audience in our circles. And so there's a lot of folks that are asking this question. So I'd love to hear you kind of, uh, at least give us kind of a high level overview of your thoughts on this topic. Yeah, yeah, sure. It is something I've been interested in just because I'm interested in what the Bible teaches in general. Uh, yeah. Obviously, I've been interested in what the Bible teaches about men and women and masculinity yeah. and femininity for many, yeah. many years. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the real pivotal passages in this. Uh, and, and let me say this up front. Um, I, I don't know uh, Brian Save personally, but no, certainly know of him and his work. And I mean, look, the reality is we probably share, you know, 98% of our totally. worldview and understanding of things in common. So I, I, I think, uh, and they don't divide know, on this issue in their own church at all. Um, uh, they made a, they made a point over and over to say that, and that that's true in our church. And I think it's probably true in your church too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think this is one of those issues that should divide, Faithful, yeah. orthodox, you know, let's say conservative, traditionally minded, you know, yeah. biblically submissive Christians in our day. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we might come to a different conclusion about uh, what First Corinthians eleven means, or what it meant, or how it might apply today. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I, you know, and anybody who is standing against feminism, uh, I, you know, I think should be commended for that in our day. Anybody who's standing against the the sexual confusion, the gender confusion. So look on all the big, big ticket items. I'm, I'm sure we walk hand in hand. Uh, yeah. so I, I do want to make that clear, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I do, uh, I, I do, uh, disagree with this. Uh, I do think you can say there's something of a movement out there, not like an organized movement, but just kind of a sure. trend now where, uh, you do have this, um, this uh, this interest has been reignited in the head covering question, and I think yeah. this is a response largely to what's happening in the culture with so much gender confusion. Yeah, uh, the the uh, you know the surge in feminism and all of its offspring. We talked about you know F L G B T Q all of that. That really feminism belongs in front of all those letters because it's really kind of the source of all this other yeah. sexual confusion. So uh, so I, again, I see why people would want to say, hey, look, maybe. 
you know, it seems like that, the, uh, you know, Christian women used to wear head coverings to church and then they quit doing it about the time that feminism arose. And so maybe there's a connection. And so maybe right. uh, if we bring head coverings back, that'll be a way of, of defeating feminism. And, sure. and again, I, I will not, I'm, I'm not going to say that women should not wear head coverings to church if they choose to do so. But I don't think it's a matter of obligation. And yeah, yeah Larson, I have written on that. I'm not going to rehearse all of my arguments here and go, you know, obviously it's a very detailed passage in 1 Corinthians 11. And I think you have to bring some other passages from the Old Testament and from elsewhere in the New Testament to bear uh, on your understanding of 1 Corinthians 11 to really get it right. Um, yeah. I'm not convinced that uh, women in the first century context in church were wearing head coverings. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever whatever uh, we think about what Paul's saying about head coverings in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verses 4 and 5, when you come down later in the chapter, he says that uh, he gets into the issue of hair length and even nature teaches you. So here's something that's rooted in God's creational design not mm-hmm. just a matter of cultural convent, convention. And he talks about men having short hair, women having long hair, that that's the natural order of things, that a, a woman's hair is her glory. Uh, but if a man has long hair, that's a disgrace for him. And then he says her hair is given to her for a covering. So I would actually think a woman's long hair is sufficient uh, as a covering. I would also say that whatever... It, it, I think if you make the argument that women in the first century were wearing head coverings, then you've got some real explaining to do when it comes to other passages like 1 Peter 3 or 1 Timothy 2. Like in 1 Timothy 2, Paul actually goes into uh, instructions for men and women in gathered worship and and what he wants men and women to do. And actually in that context, he says that he wants women to have modest apparel, uh, to dress with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls. Okay, well, if if they're covering their hair, why does it matter whether it's braided or not? Or why give instruction mm-hmm. about not putting, you know, some kind of gold ornamentation in your hair if your hair is going to be covered anyway? So right. uh, I take that as a sign that actually women coming to church in the first century in the apostolic era were not covering their hair. And that's why Paul actually has to give this instruction. Um, so otherwise he might say, well, just make sure your veil covers it. You know, that might, that right. might've been the way to go. With it. But he doesn't do right. that. So there's no indication. So I, I think it's a real questionable reading of first Corinthians chapter 11. And then I think you got other passages say in the new Testament, I could go back to the old Testament as well, but I'll just stick with the new for now that, that really call into question whether or not this was the practice, but there's something else. Let's just say for the sake of the argument that women in first Corinthians, 11 verses 4 and 5, that that does teach that women are to have some kind of artificial covering, like a second covering over right. their long hair. In addition so to their hair. Says in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5. And there's, there's an ironic twist here, and this really raises the question that I would have for our uh, for, for, for folks in our circles who are suddenly interested in having women wear some kind of artificial head covering, cloth head covering. So 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5, Paul writes, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So if a man stands before the assembly to pray, I think praying here probably has to do with praying in tongues in the context in 1 Corinthians, or to prophesy, that is to deliver 
uh, divine revelation to the congregation. If he does that with his head covered, he dishonors his head, which obviously is Christ. Okay, so right. when you see Roman Catholic um, church leaders wear like a miter over their head to lead a liturgical service, that's actually a violation of what Paul is saying here. Okay, so that, that'd mm-hmm. be a, a contemporary example. This is also why traditionally men have been told to take off their ball caps if they come into church or yeah. whatever. Uh, Certainly when they on. pray, yeah. <clears throat> but then verse 5 says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay. So every woman who prays, again, I think that's probably praying in tongues before the whole assembly or who prophesies, who delivers a a message of divine revelation to the congregation with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which again, according to what Paul said earlier in this chapter, her head would be her husband. So I don't, so I'll just say this again. I don't think women were covering their heads with some artificial head covering. And I also don't think that women were praying or prophesying publicly exercising liturgical leadership. Uh, Because I think actually what Paul is saying is that if a woman were to exercise liturgical leadership, she would need to make her appearance like a man and go the whole way and shave her head, basically. Mm. And that would, everybody knows that would be shameful. So therefore, obviously a woman should not lead the assembly in praying or prophesying. Women are not to exert liturgical leadership. And 1 Corinthians 14, I think makes that really, really clear, where it's not just that women are not prophesying publicly, but they're not even getting to question the prophets publicly during that part of the service, where you get to ask the prophet... Uh, who, who's delivered this message or this prophetess, if you take the other reading, you don't get to ask this, this prophet what his message means. Okay, um, So I don't think women were praying or prophesying publicly and exerting liturgical leadership in that context. I think 1 Corinthians 14 makes that clear. So then what's going on here? Well, I would say if you make the argument that women, were, that, that, that women have to wear additional head coverings, the one situation where Paul says that applies in 1 Corinthians 11.5 is if she is praying or prophesying publicly before the assembly. That, that would actually be the only argument I think you could make is that if a woman is praying or prophesying publicly before the assembly, she needs to have a head covering. I don't, I don't even see how you would get from 1 Corinthians 11 uh, that she needs to wear a head covering at all times in church or even outside of church because this is saying nothing about that. Okay, It's only when she's praying or prophesying. So then my question to uh, these folks who are pushing for women to start wearing head coverings in worship is, are you, along with that, allowing women to lead the assembly praying mm-hmm. or prophesying? Right. And the answer is no, from what I can tell. But my question would be, why not? Because the whole point of covering her head is so that she can pray or prophesy on your reading of 1 Corinthians 11.5. That's how it looks to right. me. Right. Uh, so so I, 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 I wonder if they realize that actually by putting head coverings on women again, they're actually opening the door to women uh, exercising liturgical leadership mm-hmm. in a way that, say, my church where women don't wear head coverings, it's not going to happen because right. I don't believe it was happening in the first century. Uh, but I also don't believe that women were wearing head coverings to church uh, in the first century. So that, that would be my question is, are you going to be consistent with this and say that so long as a woman has her head covered, she can pray and prophesy before the assembly? That so long as she mm-hmm. has her head covered, she can exercise liturgical leadership in the assembly. Um, that would that that's a question I would raise that I have not seen. I, you know, I've I've tried to listen and read what what some of these folks. I'm sure I have not gotten to all of them, but what yeah. some of these folks who are pushing for a return to head coverings 
are saying, and I haven't seen anybody actually address that question or say, yes, so long as our women have a head covering, they can lead the assembly in worship. They can lead the assembly in prayer. They can uh, prophesy or we might say preach before the assembly. Uh, so I, I, I wonder if they realize that that would be an implication of their position. I mean, Larson, yeah. do you see that differently? Do you see, did you see where I'm going with that? No, 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 I do. I do. I mean, it's, it, it seems clear to me that, that what this passage, uh, in, in first Corinthians 11 is about, it is about women praying or prophesying in church. Um, I mean that, that, that's how he sets the whole thing up. Um, and so that's what, I mean, that's the context of this conversation, um, about a covering. Um, but, but he concludes the whole thing with, you know, for her hair is given to her for a covering, you know? Um, and then I'm curious what your reading of, of verse 16 is. It says, for if, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I'm just, it's kind of a, I'm not sure what Paul's referring back. I mean, he gives this whole thing about praying and prophesying and, and about, you know, coverings and head coverings and, and the difference between men and women and uh, hair, long hair and the symbol of authority. And then it, and then he kind of concludes it with this, General statement, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no su- such practice, nor do the churches of God. Is he just saying, what's your reading of that? I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to try to interpret Well, so, so this, this, this is why I think it's perfectly legitimate to go to, say, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul actually gives instructions about how women should wear their long hair in church. And then, right. you know, they right. shouldn't turn church into a fashion show and overdo it. So, so right. all the churches have the same practice. So whatever they're doing in Corinth, they're also doing in Ephesus where Timothy is the pastor. And, and it's pretty clear to me from 1 Timothy 2 that women were not wearing head coverings. Again, I think if they were, Paul could have just said, hey, make sure your head covering covers up, you know, any fancy braids or whatever you might have in your hair, uh, you know, so that you don't overdo it. You know, make sure that your head covering covers your hair kind of thing. Or don't, or don't get uh, too your, your fancy head with the head coverings. You know, I mean, he, because he, we've, with the head yeah, cause we've seen that, that yeah. in, in, in churches where you got people, you know, ladies with big elaborate hats. And I, I imagine he would probably be talking about that if that was the, t- the thing that was happening. Yeah. So it's, so, so, so given that this is a practice that is uniform among Christians in the first century, or in the apostolic era, there's just, there's nothing else that, that, you know, we would expect since, since women's hair comes up in other places in church, you know, how, how they wear their hair in church, we would expect the head covering thing to come up again, but it does not. And so that's why I think that Paul's statement, her hair is given to her as a covering, that it's a natural covering and is sufficient. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think that that ought to settle it. Now I, I will grant that for much of church history, Many women have worn some kind of additional head covering to church. Mm-hmm. Again, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I'm not. I'm not objecting no. to that if somebody wants to do it. But what I would object to is saying that First Corinthians 11 mandates it because I don't. I don't think you can get right. that out of First Corinthians chapter 11. We kind of do this well, show off the cuff, which our leaders are probably, which our listeners are probably uh, aware of. So I might have been able to yeah. express the argument that I'm getting at in First Corinthians 11 better. But, but here's the thing, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 11, 4, and 5, if a woman ha- wears a head covering, if that's what you think 1 Corinthians 11, 5 requires, will you also allow her to lead the assembly in prayer or prophecy? And yeah. if you say, well, actually, that's prayer in tongues, and that's a special gift of prophecy, revelatory speech that is now ceased. So the prayer that's being talked about there and the prophesying that are being talked about there have ceased. I would say, well, okay, why hasn't the requirement to wear a head covering, why hasn't that ceased as well? 
since the head covering only seems to have reference to her role as a leader in the assembly, you know, leading the people in praying or prophesying. If you're saying that those special gifts have ceased, why is there, why does the requirement to wear a head covering remain? Since again, in first Corinthians, first Corinthians 11, it only seems to have to do with when a woman is praying or prophesying. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> Again, I've well, got a different reading of that passage altogether. So I'm, I'm kind of playing right. devil's advocate here and saying, okay, let's take your view and see where it leads and see if right. you're really comfortable with the result of that. I, I would go to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 14, this is what Paul says. Uh, what then, brothers? It's interesting that again and again in Corinthians, Paul addresses brothers. It's like this letter is written to the men of the church, uh, mm-hmm. obviously includes women, but it's interesting to me that he says brothers again and again. When you come together, each one of the brothers has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any brother speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three brothers, and each in turn let someone interpret. But if there's no brother to interpret, let each brother keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three brothers who are prophets speak and let the other brothers weigh in on what was said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Listen to this then. As in all the churches of the saints. So again, an appeal to universal tradition. All apostolic churches are sharing this practice. As in all the churches of the saints, the women. So he's addressed the brothers. Now he speaks to the women. The women Hmm. should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law. I think that's the whole Old Testament he's speaking of there, as the law also says. It might actually have a special reference to, to Genesis 2 and 3, but I think it's really speaking of the whole Old Testament. If there's anything they desire to learn that the women desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. That doesn't sound like women with covered heads are praying or prophesying in the assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, again, I think there's a real tension between first Corinth, that particular reading of first Corinthians 11 and first right. Corinthians 14. If you think right. it's that, okay, women wear head coverings and then they can pray or prophesy. Well, then you run into this problem with first Corinthians 14, where Paul says the women should keep silent. And I don't think it will do to say that their silence only pertains to the so-called judging of the prophets or the interpretation of tongues. Because mm-hmm. I think what he's saying, because his appeal to the law would make no sense in, in that case. Right. The appeal to right. the law has to do with the whole view of male and female given to us in the Old Testament, and particularly the liturgical roles given to men and women in the Old Testament, where you don't have women right. functioning as priests or, say, as teachers in the synagogue or anything like that. Which, again, brings me back to the fact that I don't think women were praying or prophesying uh, in the assembly, and so I don't think they needed to wear a head covering in order to do so because they weren't doing so. So anyway, I, I, all that can be said better than how I've said it in our podcast no, here, but hopefully it gives folks who are interested in this some idea of how to put these texts together and why I think you can make a really strong case that an additional fabric head covering over a woman's hair is not required and actually creates a lot of exegetical problems within 1 Corinthians and then also the rest of the New Testament. Right. Well, and I I think it's also kind of interesting here that this is sort of nestled into um, this part of First Corinthians where where there are um, 
these warnings against division in the body, um, you know, um, in, in verse, you know, chapter 10, um, it takes, it talks about, you know, we are, we who are many are one body for we all partake of one bread. And, and then he, he talks about further down in, in, in chapter 11, you know, the idea that, um, that it's not right that you're dividing, you know, that, that some of you are eating with, with, uh, you know, some are going hungry, some are getting drunk, you know, some are, you know, eating with, with, with rich people. I think back, back in, in 10, it talks about that. So it's like, it seems to me that, that verse 16, uh, about being inclined to be contentious. Um, I, I, it seems to me that, that there's, there's a bigger theme about division over just division in, in worship, you know, and it seems like that's, that's another big theme here that this is nestled right in the middle of, which, which I think, um, I commend Sove and, and others who are talking about this, who who are, are able to argue their their position and maintain and try to maintain unity uh, around this stuff and not and not um, create disunity. Because I think that's the bigger that's the bigger theme that this is kind of nestled in the middle of it is we're, we're building up to the Lord's table and it's and it's a table that um, that uh, where divisions are, are erased, you know, between Jew and Gentile and male and female and everything else. And, you know, child and adult. I mean, this is a, this is a place where this is one table and where we're going to be unified. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, I, I, I think that's another big important theme here, uh, that, that this is in the middle of, and we should, we should keep in mind as we're talking about these things. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, a couple things. One is I've known of situations where a woman insisted on wearing a head covering, even though her husband did not want her to. So mm-hmm. that's kind of ironic, wearing a sign of yeah. submission <laughs> yeah. um, when you're not being submissive. Right. Okay, so there's there's that. Yeah. Uh, but also, yeah, th- this is not something I think that we can we, we can have Christians in our circles present a united front against the evils of feminism and the, yeah. the, the gender confusion. Yeah. Uh, that comes with it, the sexual confusion that's rampant in our culture without agreeing on the head covering question in 1 Corinthians 11. I, I, I do yeah. want to make that point because you're right. I mean, a big overarching theme in 1 Corinthians, and it, and it actually does really come out there in 1 Corinthians 11, is the unity of the body. And so right. I would say within local churches, if there are different views of head coverings, I would say just let that ride. I mean, there's 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 plenty of room for disagreement about all kinds of things in the life of the local church, and let this be one of those things. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, obviously the leadership of the church may have to take a position on it because they're going to teach something right. when they get to 1 Corinthians 11. But I would say yeah. it, ought, it ought to be one of those things where we can allow for some some variation in views because you have, I would say, godly men on various sides of this question. Again, I, I don't... I don't uh, I don't have any hostility towards the people who are reading the passage differently than me and insisting right. on head coverings for, you know, say their wives. Um, right. But I, that's just not how I see the passage. Uh, yep. But I think we can still join together on all kinds of other things that don't require agreement on the head covering question. Yeah, that's good. Well, I wanted to, before we wrapped up today, uh, we've got maybe another 15 minutes or so, uh, or, or actually 20. I think we, we've got about 20 minutes left before we hit an hour, which tends to be our, our goal. Um, but I really like to get your thoughts on um, on another issue, uh, and, and it's the issue of, of uh, the what, what I think has been called the permanence view of marriage. Um, 
you know, the Roman Catholic Church has a version of this, um, just the idea that marriage is once for all, once forever, there can be no divorce and remarriage. Um, and I, I see in pockets of the church this conversation popping up from time to time. I know Vody Bauckham teaches a version of this. Um, and I don't think it's super pro- prominent in our CREC circles, although I have a I have a good friend who's an elder at a, at a candidate church, a mission church in the CREC that that's very uh, uh, teach it, you know, is, is, is very convinced of, of the arguments against remarriage. And so I'd love to hear your, I, I, you and I've talked about this. You've, I've heard you teach on this topic. And so, um, I'd love to at least just get some, some of your, your high level thoughts on this topic, um, for folks to, and, and again, we can, we can link to other resources that you've, you've written on this stuff. Yeah. In the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. This, 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 we're getting into some just really, you know, light topics today here, Larson. This is, this is a really big one. And you talk about yeah, one is. that has a, a lot of pastoral, carries a lot yeah. of pastoral weight. This one really, really does because yeah. people's uh, lives in, in, you know, are, are radically impacted by the view of marriage that their right. session or their pastor takes. Right. So, so that's got to be reckoned with. Uh, let me also say up front that, um, <clears throat> well, yeah, I just, it's just a really, really huge issue in terms of its, yeah. uh, in terms of its importance. And, and, uh, well, I, I will say this up front before digging into the issue, the permanence people, and I've seen at least some slight variation amongst the, the, the permanence people. Um, but you know, the, a lot of their argument is predicated on the fact that God hates divorce. And so we should too. I entirely agree with them. Yeah. You know, on, on that particular point, the Lord hates divorce. We know that from Malachi. We should hate divorce as well. Uh, if we don't hate, uh, that doesn't mean we have to hate people who are divorced. And it doesn't mean, again, I'm going to argue here in just a minute that there are, uh, that does not mean that there can't be legitimate grounds for divorce where divorce would actually mm-hmm. be lawful. But the sin that occasioned the divorce, the sin that I would say even made the divorce legitimate in certain cases, we should right. hate that. Um, and of yeah. course, when you have an illegitimate yeah. divorce, you know, we should hate that as well, because that's just that's sin that's compounding a, a, a situation that's already been, yeah. uh, you know, very much uh, impacted by sin. But the question is whether or not there are grounds for divorce in certain cases where a marriage can be legitimately dissolved. And then right. corresponding to that, if the marriage can be legitimately dissolved, at the very least that the the innocent party in that um, would have free a corresponding freedom to remarry. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 24, paragraph 6. And, and every phrase of what the divines uh, wrote here, I think, is really helpful and, and useful and, and wise. They say, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly, to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage, yet... Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Let me just walk you through this because I think this is actually a really good summary of what the Bible teaches. First of all, they acknowledge that people will often try to find ways to justify divorce when it's not legitimate. 
man's corruption is such that he is apt to study arguments so that he can uh, somehow justify separating what God has joined together in marriage. Mm. Boy, is that ever true. And yeah. in a culture, in a, in a society yeah. that is now basically legitimated what we call no-fault divorce, which is a which is a travesty. I mean, you know, we 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 conservative Christians talk about how oh, you know, the Obergefell ruling in 2015 was such a disaster for the biblical view of marriage, and it was. I mean, there's no doubt. Yeah. But you got to rewind back to what 1969, 1970. It was actually Ronald Reagan, governor of California, signed into law the first no-fault divorce bill, which Reagan later regretted as a big mistake. He thought he was doing something good because he saw situations where. Uh, couples should be getting divorced. There were grounds for a divorce, but 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 not you know it was not people were not availing themselves of that, and so they were stuck in these you know very abusive or just disastrous marriages. And so he thought, oh, I'll give people a way out. We'll just do away with grounds for divorce altogether. Make it no fault. Well, no, it was a, it was a complete disaster. And of course, what happened in California is so often the case. What happened in California spread to the rest of the country, and now basically in all fifty states you have something tantamount to no-fault divorce, okay? Well, that, that, that has been a disaster and actually I think did far more to subvert biblical marriage even than Obergefell. In fact, you could argue that Obergefell is kind of the outworking of those no-fault divorce bills that were passed in, in, in the states uh, in the 1970s primarily. Uh, because, because what happened with no-fault divorce is basically people said marriage is a relationship that exists for my happiness. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I am no longer happy, and maybe there's no real fault on either spouse's part, but as soon as I'm right. no longer happy, I can opt out of my marriage and then go find somebody who will make me happy. That that became yeah. the view. So marriage was, you know, that, that ended, I mean, one thing that we would all say as Christians is that marriage is supposed to be permanent in the sense of it is supposed to be till death do us part, okay? Right. Well, obviously no fault divorce undid that, okay? However, even though, you know, what the Westminster Confession says is even though people will look for excuses or ways to justify getting out of a marriage when there are not grounds, the confession does then come right back around immediately to say that there are biblical grounds for divorce in certain cases. And right. so they say nothing but adultery or willful desertion. Those are their two categories. So adultery, obviously, is a form of sexual sin. Uh, where a spouse has sex with somebody outside of the marriage. Okay. And the point is that is covenant breaking. And once the covenant has been broken in this particular way, the innocent party would be free to terminate the marriage. They could do so lawfully and they would be free to remarry. And, and if you go look at the texts uh, in scripture that address this, I think they're very clear about this, that if you divorce, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus says this, if you divorce for anything other than adultery, well, then, right. uh, then, then, uh, you know, then that, that's a problem. Okay. Right. Uh, but, but adultery does violate the marriage covenant in such a way that the innocent spouse would be free to dissolve the marriage and then go remarry somebody else. Um, you know, obviously in the Lord. Uh, so, yeah. And, and, and if, if you're thinking about this in terms of a broader biblical theological background, in the book of Jeremiah, God actually writes a divorce certificate for Israel. Israel has been unfaithful. Israel is, is Yahweh's spouse, but Israel has been adulterous. And in the book of Jeremiah, Yahweh actually writes a decree of divorce for Israel. And of course, 
Yahweh will end up remarrying uh, the church, which incorporates the faithful of Israel, but also Gentiles. Right. Okay, right. Um, I think in the Book of Revelation, uh, the scroll that's written on both sides in the Book of Revelation is probably a divorce decree for mm. the nation of Israel. God is divorcing Israel and taking the church as his bride because Israel mm. has been unfaithful, Israel has been adulterous. So he's casting mm. off the apostate, adulterous bride and taking a new bride to himself. Right. So there's, there's a whole biblical theological background here, okay, uh, that basically, I mean, Yahweh is a divorced person and Yahweh remarried. So the permanence mm. view, I think, really basically implicates Yahweh in sin, by right. saying Yahweh should not have divorced or Yahweh should not have remarried. Right. Okay, so that, that would right. be a problem. So when the divines right. say this about adultery, I think they're on good grounds, both in terms of the explicit texts that address adultery and in terms of the biblical theology that stands in the background, because mar human marriage exists for the sake of yeah. symbolizing and revealing Christ's relationship with the church. It's not yeah. that God created human marriage and then thought, oh, yeah, maybe I could use that as a symbol for my relationship with my people. No, he right. had a relationship with his people in view and then created human marriage to symbolize that, to represent that. Okay, just right. like he created human fatherhood to symbolize his own prior fatherhood. Same kind of thing. Right. Okay, so that, that's one thing. Adultery uh, is grounds for divorce lawful dissolution of the marriage, freedom to remarry. I will add this, just because a spouse commits adultery doesn't mean you have to divorce. Uh, right. If the spouse is repentant, um, sure. that, that has committed adultery, the other spouse could choose to forgive and to seek the restoration of the marriage, but they don't have to do that. They could forgive right. and still dissolve the marriage. Okay, that is an option that they have. Okay, but then also willful desertion. Now, this is one that Jesus did not talk about, but Paul brings this into the picture in 1 Corinthians 7 because he's dealing with a situation now, which you could call a missionary situation. So think about this. You have married couples. They hear the gospel mm -hmm. preached. One spouse converts and the other doesn't. This is what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then that spouse that does not convert, you know, Paul says you can still live with a non-Christian spouse. You shouldn't marry a non-Christian if you're a Christian. But if you find yeah. yourself as a, as a, you know, you got married as a pagan and now you've converted and your spouse is not, you can continue living with that person. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7. That's different than the old covenant. We're actually go back to Ezra and Nehemiah. There, mm -hmm. where you had religiously mixed marriages, they told the Jewish men to put their pagan spouses away to divorce them because the fear was that the influence of paganism yeah. would be greater than the influence of holiness. Okay. But in the new right. covenant, that whole situation is reversed. Now we expect the holiness of God's people to have a greater mm -hmm. impact and a greater influence than the unbelief, the unholiness uh, of the unbelieving spouse. So Paul can actually say in a mixed marriage situation, that unbelieving spouse is in some way sanctified. Okay? Rather than you being defiled by being married to them, in some way that unbelieving spouse is sanctified. And your children right. are holy. Even though your spouse is not a believer, your children are still covenant children and should be baptized kinda, and brought up in the truth and all that. It probably ties to, I'm sure Jordan or others would probably tie also kind of like the purity, some of the purity laws or like leper, like not being able to touch somebody that's unclean that, that exactly. in the new covenant. It, it totally ties. Right. Yeah. yeah. So think about that. In, in, under the old covenant, uncleanness always spreads. If you touch someone who's unclean, right. you're made unclean. But when Jesus comes, he touches unclean people. And instead of Jesus Maybe becoming unclean, unclean, the unclean person is cleansed. Yeah. And now that the Holy Spirit has come, life spreads out from God's people, you know, yeah, flows out from us into the world. And so there has been this 
this pivot, this reversal that's taken place. And that's what Paul is addressing in First. We haven't read First Corinthians 7, but if you go look at it, I think this is what Paul is addressing. And this is why Paul has to give special instructions about this, because actually the redemptive historical situation has changed. We're not like in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, where having an unbelieving spouse would make you unclean. Yeah. Now, actually, if you have, if you find yourself with an unbelieving spouse, that spouse is sanctified because of your holiness. Your personal holiness, in some way, spreads to them and your well, children. So, you know that that, but, that was a concern in Ezra and Nehemiah too that the children would be unclean. Well, now Paul says the children are holy. Right. Well, and I think the biggest the biggest kind of um, you know I, th- I think permanence view people would probably agree with most of what you've said about divorce or a lot of what you've said about divorce but i think that where the rubber meets the road is remarriage you know it's 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 the question of well jesus says you know if you remarry then you're committing adultery um and and so and so he's saying you cannot ever remarry um well i think jesus is saying that if there aren't grounds if if there aren't grounds right. for divorce and you divorce, and then you remarry, that does become a kind of adulterous relationship because you've still got obligations to the spouse that you divorced, okay? So I think that's what he's talking about there. It's interesting to me in 1 Corinthians 7, okay, going back to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says the, the Christian spouse can live with the non-Christian spouse, but if the non-Christian spouse wants to go, if a pagan spouse does not want to live with a Christian spouse, let them go, and then Paul says you're free, you're not bound, which means mm. you are free to remarry yeah. because you have been deserted by your spouse. Now, there are right. debates as to exactly how far uh, desertion stretches. So, for example, yeah. if a spouse simply um, moves out and is living under an- another roof and doesn't want to have anything watches, to do with you. Or watches too much right? football. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's some things that are kind of trivial problems within a marriage that don't rise to this level, Uh, but there can be legitimate questions. Does, does physical, you know, let's say somebody's living under the same roof, but is physically abusive. Does that amount to divorce? Well, it's to, um, to desertion that would then give grounds for divorce. It's really interesting to me in, in the book of Exodus, and this is why it's so important to know Old Testament case law in the book of Exodus, uh, there is a, um, a a case law that deals with this. Okay, it talks about how, um, and I don't know if I can find it offhand. You know, again, we do these podcasts off the cuff. We don't we don't uh, we don't come in with notes the way other podcasters do. But yeah, in, for, in, 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 in the case law in Exodus, I think it's in Exodus twenty one. Uh, if a man does not give to his wife clothing shelter, and conjugal rights, then she has the right to leave him, okay? Because the, those, the failure of, of a man to provide for his wife the basic necessities and sex, okay, because there's, there's a right to sex within marriage, the, the failure yeah. to provide those things is tantamount to covenant breaking, and so therefore she would have the right to leave. She would have the right to divorce and, and go find somebody else. Okay, so yeah. that that's in the case law in Exodus, and um, if I could if I could find that, I would I would it's Exodus twenty one. Okay, Exodus twenty one, and let's Verse see, ten it and eleven, I think. Ten and eleven. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, clothing, and her marriage rights. Okay, so he's got to provide food for food for her, clothing for her, and sex. 
if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. So when it says she shall go out free, I take that to mean she has grounds for divorce and she's free to remarry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because he broke covenant with her. Okay. So you could mm-hmm. raise the question in, in a situation where there is physical abuse, is, would that fall under this, these same kind, you know, this, this case law in Exodus 21, would that fall under the same kind of thing? And I would say it very well could, but here's the thing. It is not for you as a, you know, let's say the abused spouse in that situation to make that judgment. The Westminster right. Divines were very smart to go on to say that uh, in, in, in that paragraph that I read, that when you do have grounds for dissolving a marriage, there should be a public and orderly course of proceeding observed, and the person's concern should not be left to their own wills or discretion, okay? So who should make this judgment? I would say in a case like this, a church session should make the judgment whether or not the marriage covenant has actually been broken so that there are Mm -hmm. grounds for divorce and a corresponding freedom to remarry. Sessions right. have to act as judges in these particular cases. And so this right. is where knowing that case law in Exodus 21, you could say, well, okay, food, food, clothing, clothing. and sex. Okay, if those things are not yeah. being provided for within the marriage, then that strikes at the heart of the marriage covenant. The marriage has been broken. And so the spouse who's innocent of those things would be free to divorce, you know, free to go, and also then yeah. free to remarry. It seems to me in the Bible, whenever there is... Uh, grounds for divorce, there is a corresponding freedom to remarry. That's an important okay. principle, I think. Yeah. So so going, going back to 1 Corinthians 7, just one more point I'll, I'll make about this. Um, yeah. Paul talks about how when if a non-Christian spouse doesn't want to live with a Christian, then the Christian should let them go. Okay. And, and then mm-hmm. if they do that, if, if they do, Paul says there's a, there is, uh, you know, you're not bound, you're, you're free to remarry. That I think mm-hmm. is really, really important, that the freedom yeah. to remarry in these particular cases, because think about it. One of the things Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is that uh, marriage is, uh, you know, he says it's better to marry than to burn. For example, yeah, that's right. So you know, say you had a you know a a twenty three year old um, guy who gets married and and his yeah. wife very yeah. soon thereafter commits adultery, uh, and so he's got grounds for, or let's just say she leaves him, you know, altogether. Okay, she could be excommunicated right. by the church for her adultery or her desertion. Okay, so 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 her sin is dealt with that way through a disciplinary process in the church. But what about him? Is he the victim of her sin for the rest of his life? Right. Or is the fact that she was excommunicated so you know, she's not right. a Christian. He's obviously not obligated to go back and remarry her because she's not a Christian right. Uh, right. and you're to marry in the Lord. Uh, but it, but is he now, as a 23-year-old man, now going to have to yeah. suffer yeah. a life of loneliness and sexual frustration for the rest of his days on earth right. because yeah. this woman sinned against him in this particular way? I would right. say no. And I would say that's yeah. that First Timothy chapter 4, Paul actually says it is it is a demonic teaching to forbid people to marry. Now we could say, okay, he's talking about people who've never been married before. I grant that's probably primarily what's in view, like a requirement of celibacy. But I would also say in cases where the Bible seems to give people the freedom to remarry after a marriage covenant has been broken, to burden them with this obligation to never marry again, to me almost seems like a demonic, um, Mm way of, of, of burdening them with something that, that, that is 
could very well be a disaster for them and something God doesn't yep. want them burdened yep. with. Well, I, I I couldn't agree more, Rich, and and I think I think it's um. I think it's heaping a burden, uh, 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 such a heavy burden um, on on. In in my mind, it's causing younger saints to 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 stumble. You know, it's 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 kind of a millstone sort of situation um, when you've got a twenty year example of a twenty three year old young Christian who whose whose wife abandons them uh, abandons him or or commits adultery and then leaves him to say sorry man you're 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 up a creek now you screwed up uh, you weren't a believer then but doesn't matter you screwed up and it's all over for you and the thing that I think is happening here you know like <clears throat> one of the things that's happening is I think it's a weird kind of pragmatism you know I think people think man, you know, divorce is terrible. We hate divorce. What can we do to, to stop divorce? And they think, well, you know, this, there is a doctrine that, that is so intense that it'll make people really think twice before divorcing. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, how powerful would it be if we banned remarriage that would keep people from divorcing? And it's kind of like, I've heard James Jordan talk about this perennial temptation that we have with respect to the liturgy to innovate, you know, to take, to, to go, yeah, Jesus broke the bread and he passed around, but how much more meaningful would it be if we all came up to the front and we all kneeled and the pastor whispered some sweet nothing into our ear and he broke it and, 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 and fed it to us? Wouldn't that be even more meaningful? And, and the question, it's like you said earlier, it's like, do you really think God, you really think Jesus didn't know, didn't put all of the meaning into the, this, this meal that he could have and wanted to, uh, you think he didn't, he, you have a better idea than Jesus did. You're always, it's always, you're always importing some other, you're, you're wanting to be more holy or more, you know, uh, more, I mean, in this case, more holy than, than God. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it's a, I think it's a sli- it's a dangerous place to find yourself in, uh, as a, as a church leader. Well, one, one other thing that comes up in these discussions is what if my spouse dies? Am I free to remarry? Uh, well, yeah. let me read this from the Westminster Confession. This has to do with adultery, okay? Um, they yeah. say in the paragraph before the one I read earlier, so this is paragraph five of chapter 24, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Okay, so again, they're saying adultery breaks the covenant, uh, yeah. and so if you're the innocent party, you're free to divorce your spouse and actually to remarry another. You don't have to. You can be reconciled if that's what you choose, but you know, it's victim's yeah. rights. You, 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 you have the choice at that point, okay? Um, but it's interesting to me at the end of that, they say, is if the offending party were dead, okay? For a lot of Western history, adultery was punishable by death. Uh, in biblical law, adultery can be punished by death. It's not mandated that it be pu- punished by death, but it's but it's a it's a it's uh, it's a maximum penalty that's there that could yeah. be uh, enforced in certain cases. Uh, so um, so you could say, well, you know, adultery is potentially a capital crime. Here, the Westminster Divine said, as if the offending party were dead. Okay. Well, the point right. being that if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. Now, again, some permanence people take the view that even if your spouse dies, you're not free to remarry. Go back to my right. example of a 23-year-old guy that gets married. This time, instead of his, you know, his wife running off and committing adultery or deserting him, let's say she tragically dies. Okay. Yeah. Well, now as he's stuck as a single 
man for the rest of his life because because his wife has died. Again, I would right. say no. I would say he actually has freedom to marry in the Lord, to go marry again. And, uh, and I think that's really pastorally important uh, to acknowledge mm-hmm. that. I mean, I will say this for my own part. I would not want to be in a church where uh, the session and the pastor would tell me that I cannot remarry if my, say, if my wife were to die or if my wife were to commit adultery and leave me um, because yeah. I would not want to put myself under that kind of leadership where I think there's, a, there's actually something very oppressive to this, okay? Yeah. Uh, because I think, it, again, it's, it's, it's binding burdens on people they weren't designed to right. bear. Right. Uh, well, marriage, I mean, marriage, yeah, go ahead. No, go, you go ahead. I've got one last point I want to make. You well, ahead. I was going to say, you know, uh, the the Anglican um, kind of marriage um, uh, rites or the the Anglican kind of marriage uh, liturgy talk, you know, gives a very lovely and concise explanation of what the purpose of marriage is, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 it is for it, it is it is for the mutual sanctification of the two that are married it is for that it's a protection against fornication and it's for reproduction and and uh and it's like are, are people who are widowed or people who who uh, are abandoned are they no longer you know are they no longer human <laughs> are they no longer right. exactly. does god no longer yeah. have this this design for them uh does it no longer you know um I would also say, just in the question of of the widow or the or the somebody whose spouse dies, um, it seems to me that that First Corinthians seven verse eight address and nine addresses that. It says, "If the unmarried, I say to the unmarried and to to widows, it's good for them that if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn." So yeah, he's Paul actually urges widows to view, get remarried. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. The they in view there is urges. unmarried and widows. Right. That, and, for, and, and in First Timothy, Paul actually urges widows to get remarried, widows who are below a certain age. He, he urges them to get remarried. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So so remarriage after the death of a spouse, I mean, to me, that that's very clear. And and I've known some permanence people who even there would say, oh, no, you know, if your spouse dies, that's God's providence. You just have to deal with it. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? So so let me let me close with this. I mean, marriage is a covenant. Covenants can yeah. be broken, and when they are, there are consequences. The relationship can be dissolved. So that's you know that's clear at the level of biblical theology with Yahweh and Israel. It's also clear at the level of human marriage. Uh, but let, let me close with this. This is an example, and there are many examples of this kind of thing. But this is an example where somebody gets the idea in their head that the most rigorous position must be the right one, that the most rigorous position must be the biblical one. If it's harder to do, it must therefore be righteous. That's right. That's just not true. That's not how it works. Um, They're off that God's law does not work that way. Uh, The permanence view is more rigorous, but it's actually rigorous in a legalistic extra biblical sense. Uh, And that's a huge problem. So yeah, uh, I, I would, it's I would kind tell of, any, it's a kind of fair anybody to be careful about putting yourself under that kind of pastoral leadership. You know, hopefully it never happens to any of us where we have to deal with it. But if it does, you don't want to be in a church where the pastor and elders are going to tell you, oh, I'm sorry your spouse died, or I'm sorry your spouse abandoned you, but you can never get married again, even though yeah. you're the victim. 
Right. And look, I mean, I, I think we can all agree that no fault divorce is evil, uh, that the right. divorce is right. far too common, uh, that the church has abandoned her role in adjudicating these marriage and divorce scenarios and that the church should play a much bigger role than, than, than she is playing today. All of these things are true. Uh, and that there should be less divorce than there is today. The problem is we don't get to create new standards to try to, to try to head these issues off at the pass. You know, we have to, we're bound to what, what scripture uh, tells us. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like the, I mean, I think it's a kind of Pharisaism, you know, it's, it's a kind of, um, you know, tithing out of the spice rack, you know, um, uh, but, but, but ignoring the weightier measures of, of the law. Um, and, and I think that's what we're dealing with here. It's a, so, so I hope that this was at least helpful and, and, and compelling. You've, you've written on this stuff, uh, do you have do you have resources on your blog uh, about this particular? Yeah, topic? I don't I don't know if I've got this on my blog, but yeah, I have addressed okay. this and you know I preached through for I mean quite honestly the things we talked yeah. about today with head coverings and with marriage. Yeah. I preached through First Corinthians years ago. It's one of my favorite okay. books to to you know to to preach because it's, it's dense, obviously man. so relevant. Yeah. Um, and it's a very dense book, but if, if people went on our sermon page on our website, they could, okay. they could search I me mean, several years back now, but you could search cool. and find my preaching on first Corinthians seven, where I deal with marriage and divorce or first Corinthians 11, where I deal with the head covering question. I have blogged cool. on the head covering question. I don't know if I did anything on marriage and divorce on the blog, but I've got some other things I've written that, uh, that deal with this, that I could maybe send you some, some links. Yeah. Uh, Laura, yeah. So we'll we we'll put whatever you got in the show we'll notes with this, with this episode. Well, good, uh, good chatting with you, sir. Uh, appreciate you taking a minute here uh, to to chat about some some issues: church calendar, head coverings, marriage, divorce, remarriage. Um, good stuff. I hope that if you're listening listening in, you know our, one of our taglines is theology for normal people. Um, you know, I think uh, our our aim here is to try to get good teaching, good theology into the hands of of normal people, and not necessarily keep it, you know, tucked away in, in huge tombs right. that were of academics having, you know, debates about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or whatever. Um, so hope this is helpful for you. If you've enjoyed it, uh, subscribe and share this, uh, with your friends and, uh, and give us your comments and give us your thoughts. We've had a few episodes now, several episodes that were the result, the conversation and the topic were the result of suggestions or questions that came in. So we, we love that kind of stuff. And, uh, would would encourage you to to send us more more of your questions. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Rich. Good having you, man. We'll we'll see you Great. next time. Great to be with you. Yeah. Take care. All right. Cheers. The God a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also like the Good Life podcast, where Matt Carpenter interviews historians, philosophers, authors, and more about how their work contributes to a good life.